Shelton Sanders was 25 years old and going places. He was responsible, driven, and a dedicated systems manager well on his way to earning his bachelor's degree and working in the IT field. But on a hot June night in 2001, while planning a bachelor party with his friend Mark Richardson, Shelton disappeared. Two years later, his car was found abandoned, leaving more questions than answers. What happened to Shelton Sanders that night? My name is uh, Wilberia Sanders. I am 31 years old. I'm the youngest of four children. Um, I was born and raised in Brembert, South Carolina. I am a professional. I have three older brothers and I have two small children, five and three. And I am the sister of Shelton Sanders who went missing on June 19, 2001. And right now I'm on the journey to um, seeking justice for my brother. Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well today, Tim. I hope everyone out there is doing great. But the big question, the $63,000 question is, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much for uh, making that the $63,000 question today. Lance, in today's episode, we speak about the heartbreaking disappearance of Shelton Sanders from Columbia, South Carolina on June 19th, 2001. At the time of his disappearance, Shelton was 25, and by all accounts, he was extremely smart, and it's frustrating, but, you know, you got to get the word out there, so listen to this, and um, anyone who's got information on Shelton's disappearance, you are instructed to contact the Richland County Sheriff's Department at 803-576-3000, and there's also a family tip line, 803-427-4209. And Jennifer Amell spoke with Shelton's sister, Wilveria, in an emotional interview. And Lance, we are going to CrimeCon at the end of April. April 29th through May 1st, we will be in Las Vegas, and you can join us. All you have to do is go to CrimeCon.com and use code CRAWLSPACE, and you'll get 10% off your standard badge. And CRAWLSPACE is one of our other shows, Lance, which our audience should be listening to. That's right, and we will be happy to answer any questions you might have on Shelton's disappearance or Brianna Maitland's disappearance or Erica Franelich's disappearance. Happy to answer them. Swing over to our table on Podcast Row. We will also be there with our new partners, Glassbox Media. They will be representing our show as well as all the other shows that are on their Glassbox Media Network. And speaking of Glassbox, Lance, they helped set us up with Supporting Cast. So you can go to missing.supportingcast.fm and sign up for our new subscription service for Missing. You will get ad-free episodes, sometimes early releases, and you'll get our bonus show where we'll share additional thoughts and theories on select episodes, as well as a monthly AMA with Miu and Jennifer. And be sure to swing over to social media and follow us on Twitter at MissingCSM as well as uh, Crawlspace. That is Crawlspace Pod. And make sure to follow PIs for the Missing as well and consider donating to them. If you've got any spare change hanging around, you can do that at investigationsforthemissing.org. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome back to the podcast. Jennifer Amell, how are you today? I'm well. It's a pleasure to be back. It's great to have you back. And Uh, especially great to have you back to talk with us about Shelton Sanders. That's the individual that we'll be speaking about today on the show. But first, we wanted to address something that we've been seeing in some of the comments. And, you know, as a young nonprofit, Private Investigations for the Missing is learning as they go. Us being on the board, we're learning as we go. You're learning as you go. So a lot of people were wondering, um, it was a little ambiguous what the role is that you play in all of this because you're behind the scenes a lot, but you're also the voice on the show as well. So uh, before we started, you wanted to just add some clarity to that. So opening up the floor to you to add a little bit of clarity, and I think the audience will really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I think there's been a little bit of confusion. And I mean, it's confusing to us, like the the line gets blurred sometimes. But I just want to make it clear that like, I, I am not an investigator, I am not involved in any of these investigations. 
I'm a producer. I work for you guys. I work for Crawl Space Media. So any insider information that's going on with law enforcement or with a private investigator, I'm not privy to. Um, I'm just here to be sort of that liaison between Crawl Space, you know, the media arm and the nonprofit itself. And I also want to add another layer. The first priority for you is to reach out to any family member or friends that are close to the individual that we're speaking about. And then you work with the researchers putting together all of the uh, details of the disappearance so that we can, as accurately as possible, speak about it on air. So family and friends try to get some information um, and establish a relationship, a good rapport with the with those people, because I mean, how 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 much closer can you get to the disappeared individual than that? And then the details need to be um, assembled in a way where we can clearly and accurately depict them, you know, to the best of our ability. So, yes, that is your role in the media. But you do come across very, uh, very detective like in your appearance <laughs> and your tone. So I think that might be where the lines were blurred a bit. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the plaid. It's the plaid. It's the plaid blazer. Yeah. Yeah. And and more than that. Um, I mean, yes, I, I try to make it a priority to speak to any family member because part of our mission with private investigations for the missing is to accept cases that come directly from like family member requests. But more than that, like kind of how the cases are triaged by our team over there is like they'll take some ca- cases and hand them directly to private investigators and set that investigative process up. And we don't even see it on the media side, on the research side. So the cases that do come to the podcast are those that we've vetted out and like we might be able to get involved but we might not but we want to offer the family some help in form of like raising awareness through the podcast. So yeah, it's it's not that all of the cases we cover here are actually active investigations that PI for the missing is handling. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's literally a case by case basis how um, you know, each each disappearance is handled by uh PIs for the missing. But let's jump into Shelton Sanders' case. Okay, well this one comes to us from Columbia, South Carolina. Shelton went missing on June 19th, 2001. He was 25 years old at the time he went missing. He was born August 31st, 1975. And he's classified as endangered missing. Shelton is a black male, about six foot one inch, 225 pounds. At the time of his disappearance, Shelton was wearing a short sleeved button down shirt, khaki pants and a Movado watch with a stainless steel band, a black face with diamonds and distinguishing characteristics. One stands out. Shelton has a birthmark on his neck. Shelton John Sanders was part of a large family living close to each other around Rembert, Sumter County, South Carolina. His father, William Sanders, was a longtime Sumter County magistrate married to Peggy. And he has two brothers and a sister named Wilveria, who was only 11 at the time Shelton went missing. He lived with his parents and commuted to Columbia, a little over 30 miles away, as he was attending the University of South Carolina. And at the top of this, in the uh, description, we described him as driven and responsible, dedicated, and he was. I mean, he worked as a computer technician in the Department of Neuropsychiatry and Behavioral Science. He expected to graduate with his bachelor's degree in uh, December of 2001, described and proven to be a good student, and he also had his own computer programming website. So this is 2001, and that is pretty impressive. He was an active member of the Rafting Creek Baptist Church and participated in several youth groups to include the Boy Scouts, the Knights of Pythagoras, and he played in Hillcrest High School's marching band. You know, I was very curious. I looked up the Knights of Pythagoras, and I'm not sure if uh, you folks did as well, but it's a mentoring program. It's 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 like a uh, like a division of the Freemasons of, associated with them from what I you know, the, the preliminary uh, work that I research that I put in on that. But it's a mentoring program. So in addition to all that, he was into community building and mentoring the youth of the community. Again, super impressive. All three of them had their own personalities. Now, Shelton, my middle brother, he was around. Um, so he was still in the house. You know, he. 
he was going to college because he was when I was born, he was 15. And so when I was growing up, he was still at the house, although he was getting ready to graduate from high school and go to college when I was like around four or five years old. He was, he was still living home with us and commuting back and forth to Columbia. So I had a little bit more time with him. And Shelton was, you're going to learn how to cook. He had a stool for me. He had me go up to the kitchen, um, put the stool next to the, to the counter and show me how to cook grits and eggs and bacon. Um, he was going to show me how to do karate and boxing. So we were like, so I remember this one time we were in the laundry room and he was showing me how to, um, wash the clothes and dry the clothes and how to put the bleach in the white clothes and the did uh li liquid and the you know color clothes and how to you know turn the dials and stuff to the machine and he was like all right while that's doing that all right put your fists up I'm gonna show you how to box and then he's like all right when I do this I want you to pull your head to this side and when I when I hit this way I want you to move your head to the opposite side so Sheldon was more of like preparing me to be like um to defend myself, to make sure I was a, like, uh, I guess, a, a, a good housewife, a good workaholic. And he wanted, he even went outside and showed me how to play football. He was just wanting me to be an all around woman. Like, I want you to know how to do this, this, and not need a man for nothing. And then he also told me, I want you to have eight kids. And he was just like, always like, not, <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to think, oh my God, my brother Shelton is bossy. Like, he's always telling me what to do all the time. And then, like, when I'm in my room and I'm watching my cartoons on a Saturday, he's like, what, are, what? Like, he used to call me Alistica by my middle name. He was like, Alistica, I want you to turn the TV off and I want you to read a book. And so I was like, he's more of my my actual, I always call Shelton my actual parent because my parents didn't even do that to me. But, like, if I'm in trouble, of course, you know, I'll get disciplined by him and He'll um, get on me about something that if I didn't do something right, he'll be my disciplinary and I would cry. I'm like, why are you doing this? I, I, when I was a kid, I thought it was torture. I was like, oh my God, he's always hitting me. And my parents don't, they don't, you know, discipline me as much. So they, but my parents were actually looking, they were, they wanted him to be the disciplinary because they thought that he did a better job than them. So he was like, <laughs> yeah. So, because I got my act together when Shelton was on me, I was like, oh, no, I don't want my brother to get on me. So, yeah, so he was, he always kept me in line and because I'm, I'm very, I was a very mischievous child. I was always in playing and getting around and doing stuff I had no business. So my brother was there to keep, kick me in line. And, and so he was, you know, he, I miss him truly. I mean, he would always tickle me and blow on my stomach and, you know, you just like chase after me outside and just he was just like really fun um and he was serious when he needed to be serious so um he was Shelton was like my mom needed some he was my mom's right hand he was the one that was cleaning the house cooking on the grill you know when we had reunions at the house we had family over Shelton was cutting the grass for my dad he was cutting the grass for like our neighbors our aunts and stuff like that so um he would he was like the community helper like he was helping people in the community that needed anything so um Shelton was the go-to guy like everybody loved him he was he'll give you the shirt off his back so let's talk a little bit about where this area is in South Carolina so Rembert the town that they this family lived in give me some geography at the time of the 2000 census around the time that Shelton went missing it had a population of only 406 with 144 households, so super small. And since then, in the 2010 census, the population actually dropped to 306. And Sumter County is located in the mid-east portion of South Carolina. It's home to the Shaw Air Force Base, one of the largest bases in the USAF, which is just 11 miles south of Rembert. One thing that really stood out to me about the description of that area is how the population is just over 400 at the time of his disappearance, and it's decreased since, according to the uh, census that was taken about nine or ten years later. I mean, 400 people. 400 people is an incredibly small amount of people to be living in a, in a community. And then you cut that out by a, a whole fourth. Yeah, and Wilveria said that she and her family still live in Rempert. 
And she said that they have like a huge family, like hundreds of members, like all the, the mothers had like 10 plus children. So their family reunions are like huge and fun, I imagine. And again, just to be, you know, reiterate it, it's hard enough to achieve something at that age and be that driven and have that much foresight. And that drive definitely comes from his parents. My dad was, um, like I said, the breadwinner. He was a judge. He was in the military. He served in the Vietnam War. So he was in the military for 33 years. He was a judge um, for 18 years. My mom was a science teacher for 30 years before my brother went missing. And when he went missing, unfortunately, my parents both had to retire. They weren't planning on retiring that soon. But due to my brother's disappearance, um, they had to come out. My parents were very hardworking. My dad was always in the yard teaching the boys how to cut grass, how to work on cars. My mom was in the house cooking dinner, cooking breakfast. So she was a uh, working home mom at the same time. My oldest brother, you know, we all, we were all about academics in this house. Like we all had to make straight A's or B's. My brother graduated top of his class. Um, my, we were like, all three of my brothers were into IT. So they're the IT um nerds, the gurus, um, they know about computers. They all got their um, bachelor's degree. My parents have their bachelor's and master's. My brothers have their bachelor's and master's. I have my bachelor's and master's in business. So we were all about hard work ever since we were kids. Wanted to have our own family, our own children. And, you know, unfortunately, Shelton wasn't able to have that opportunity. So our parents instilled in us a, um, a good life. They gave us a good life. They gave us what we needed. Not everything that we wanted, but we had what we needed. Um, we're still in the same area that we lived all of our lives. Um, my parents are very traditional, like I said. Um, so we followed traditions of, you know, of the past, um, how they were raised. They wanted to raise us old school, how they were raised. So, yeah, we have a lot of old, uh, old, uh, old soul in us, all four of us. So on June 19th, 2001, it was a Tuesday, Shelton left home at 9.30 a.m. and drove his brother's car to Columbia for a day of classes, work, and then to get together with a friend to work on plans for their mutual friend Brian's bachelor party. He arrived at a friend's house at 7.30 p.m. to plan the bachelor party. And originally, the friend was to go with Shelton to hotels to reserve them for the party, but the friend wasn't able to go, and Shelton asked Mark Richardson to go with him instead. This sort of puts you back into that 2001 time frame where he's not hopping online to make these reservations at the hotels. Um, he probably would have cost like minutes or would have had to have paid a phone bill to call to reserve the hotel. So they had to go out and, and do it on foot. Um, just interesting to put yourself in that, that, uh, that time frame. And to show his responsibility, he did call his parents around 8.30, 8.45 that night to let them know that he'd be home later than expected. And he told his brother he'd be home in about two hours. So he had planned on being home at around like 10.30, 10.45. Again, what 25-year-old is so responsible that he calls home to say he's going to be out late? Yeah. I mean, he did have his brother's car, so maybe he was just checking in to, to tell... His brother, his younger brother, I believe it was. And the last call he made on his cell phone was at 9.07 p.m. was to Mark Richardson. And that call pinged on the cell tower at Pendleton Street. Mark said he asked Shelton to do this and he had misplaced his phone. Yeah, so it seems like they were traveling either separately in different cars or together in one car to go visit these hotels. Seems like Mark lost his, lost track of his cell phone, so he asked Shelton to call it like maybe so he could hear it ring or something so he could find it at least that's what he said but we don't know if someone else answered or if he actually did hear that all we know is that Shelton called Mark at 907 and it pinged on the cell tower at Pendleton Street which I guess can give some some idea of where the phone was and the following morning Shelton's employer called Peggy, letting her know that the always punctual Shelton had not shown up for work. That's got to drop your heart. I imagine getting that kind of call, especially if about your son who was so responsible and, you know, is not known to show up late or not at all to work. Like Peggy must have known something was going on. And they do end up calling his cell phone. They, they end up trying Shelton's cell phone, but 
it just goes straight to voicemail after several attempts. And on June 22nd, the family files a missing person report with the Sumter County Sheriff's Department, and that is when the investigation into his disappearance is launched. Uh, what does that tell you? That the phone goes to voicemail after, you know, pretty pretty much instantly after, you know, several calls. Well, it's out of out of service, out of range, um, or just off, broken potentially. And Shelton's dad, William, instructed his son, Edwin, to start contacting Shelton's friends. All were cooperative and wanted to help with the exception, notable exception, let me add, of Mark. And family, friends, and neighbors were brought in to do interviews during the first few weeks. Tips came in, but nothing resulted in any concrete info as to where Shelton or his vehicle was. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that cell phone ping is really important and... They don't know where the car is at this point. They don't really have a place to start searching for Shelton, right? Well, I guess that ping, right, would be the last place they knew he was or area, I suppose, uh, especially if they're not getting cooperation from Mark. I suffered in a way where I watched my parents emotionally get drained. When I was a kid, I could hear my mother downstairs crying, um, screaming in the middle of the night and I was I was still in the fifth grade when he went missing but then that that following uh, fall I was in the sixth grade so I was actually in middle school when I really heard my mother doing I was traumatized by all the the crying and then my dad was out to like two and three o'clock in the morning because that was his time to go search swamps and search wood areas where people were sleeping. He didn't have to worry about traffic being on the road and noise. He would go out at night looking for Shelton by himself. My yeah, of course, yeah. Well, he would be he would be with law enforcement in the daytime, um, doing like um you know with like um the wildlife doing wildlife fishing people doing that. He'll be with the helicopters and drones, um, and he would be with uh, law enforcement. Uh, riding down the roads but then he took it he wanted time for himself to search for my brother himself so that time to do that was at nighttime when we were sleeping and he would be out uh in Colombia. just you know he wouldn't leave at that time but he'll still be out at that time so he'll leave the house maybe seven or eight and still would be searching for my brother till wee hours in the morning still had to go to work um by seven o'clock in the morning and so of course that you know, my dad being away from the house searching for my brother and then my mom's at home emotional and still having children in the house, small children, was, you know, it, I can just, just say that it was a very traumatic, uh, just going, hearing my parents argue about that or my mom being emotional and I can hear her reading Bible scriptures and my dad trying to be the head of the house and trying to hold the family together. At some point during the investigation, Shelton and Mark's movements in Columbia were tracked down as they researched all those hotels uh, for places to stay for the bachelor party. Um, they visited the Wellesley Inn and Suites, which is now an extended stay America on Kinley Road. That was around 9.30 p.m. Right after that was the Embassy Suites on Greystone Boulevard at 9.51 p.m. And then finally, the residence in just after 10 p.m., um, which is interesting because it just seems like they're going in and doing their business and and leaving. You know, they've just taken care of three hotels or inns uh, within half hour or so. And Mark booked rooms at all three hotels for the July 7th bachelor party, which was the Saturday before the wedding. Okay, so this tells us a couple of things that at 10 p.m. that evening, his plan for the night was still on track, right? Nothing seemingly had gone wrong at that point. And also, he wasn't planning on going missing because he had booked rooms at, at three different hotels for a bachelor party that was happening two weeks later. Yeah, and I think part of the plan with that was to be like to bring it back to the group of friends that were going to be involved with this bachelor party and be like we booked um you know rooms at all these three hotels but you guys pick the best hotel that you want and we'll cancel the other rooms so it wasn't like they reserved all three hotels for this like massive group or anything it was a small group of friends and according to mark they both returned to mark's house 
on Olympia Avenue in Columbia between 11 and 11.30 p.m. And it's unknown, which is interesting because if they, if the last one was around 10 p.m., what were they doing between uh, 10 p.m. and the 11 to 11.30 timestamp? The residence in the last hotel that they booked was just a few minutes from Mark's house. So uh, it's not known if they went to another location. I don't believe that they booked an, another hotel or, or uh, rooms at another hotel in between there. Or maybe they went out and got a drink or something. But um, Mark's account was that they were back at his place between 11 and 1130. So there's a little bit of a gap there of an hour or an hour and a half. Yeah. And Wilveria kind of takes us through Mark's story about this evening. Mark Richardson's statement was after they looked for the hotels, they went back to Mark Richardson's house. He said that he that Shelton had dropped him off back to his house. Shelton, he asked Shelton to come inside of his house, and Shelton said, "No, he has to go back home to Rembert because he was driving my uh, my youngest brother's car, um, Edwin's car, and so he had to because Shelton's car was in the shop that day. Um, so he drove Edwin's car, and so he told him that no, I can't come to, I can't come in the house. I have to." go back home to Rembert to drop Javon's car back off for him to use. And of course it's a 45 minute drive from Mark Richardson's house to our house in Rembert. Now a little bit about Mark Richardson, according to WIS news 10, Mark and Shelton, they were roommates until just before Shelton's disappearance. Um, But I don't think we know why Shelton moved back in with his parents. Mark was employed with an oil drilling company based in Florence, South Carolina at the time of Shelton's disappearance. So it's not like one of them wasn't able to pay the rent or anything, you know, so who knows why Shelton decided to move back in with his parents. I go through these pictures and I see Mark Richardson in like four or five of the pictures. And then I'm going through and I'm like, so they've been they've been friends for some years. So then I reached out to the best man, Brian, who he was planning a bachelor party for. So Brian is one of, you know how like you have a group of friends and that one friend is like the solitaire. Like he's like the people that most people trust. He's like, like, you know, we can go to him, very level-headed. So he was one of those friends and I, I've been keeping in contact with him weekly. And I said, Brian, because he was friends with Mark and they all went to USC together. So it's like a group of them. It's like five or six of them, but I keep in touch with one. And I'm like, answer me this question. Why am I seeing Mark Richardson in Shelton's 1993 class book, college pictures? And he's like, oh, Mark and Shelton were friends from the 90s, since 92, 93. And I'm like, what? I'm thinking that he met him like the year prior to, or he was like, no, Shelton and Mark, all of us, he was just saying the group of the friends, it was like, it was, um, and I can name them for you if you wanted me to, but there, there's just Brian and Shelton and Mark and the other five guys. They were all friends since high school. They were, they started in science class, one of their science classes in USC, and then they were all roommates in dorm, right? So they were like, okay, two, two to this room, two to that room. They were all a group of friends and they all like, you know, roommate it. But, but yeah, but when they were freshmen in college, they met each other then in 1993. And I'm like, oh my God. And then he was, so I said, well, Brian, what is the motive? What would be, he was like, there, no one can think of that. Mark and Shelton never had an argument. They never got into it. They never, like nothing. Shelton never got into an argument or, well, argument, of course, like friends have arguments, but not like, like I'll kill you kind of argument or, you know, fights or anything. There was nothing like that between them. So he doesn't understand what, what was the motive. And that's why he wants to know what's the, what's the why behind it. Cause he's been around Shelton since high school and never seen him get into an altercation with anybody that could lead to death. And it wasn't until April 26th, 2003, not quite two years after Shelton disappeared, that his brother's white 1988 Oldsmobile Regency was found backed into a space at the Greenbrier apartment complex in Columbia, not far off Park Lane Road, wedged between Interstate 20 and Highway 277. This brought the Richland County Sheriff's Department into the investigation. 
So what brought the sheriff to the complex was a noise disturbance between the buildings 18 and 20. That's where they noticed the Oldsmobile. And judging by the state in which it was, they felt the car had been sitting there the entire time. The tires were flat. There was oil leaking out. So they checked the license plate and it was revealed that it was registered to Shelton's brother. Kind of remarkable that a car is sitting in an apartment complex for almost two years, just leaking oil and, and not moving anywhere. Yeah, it's amazing that nobody called in about it. You think you would notice a car that's just been sitting there for so long. This was a complex that was built in 1989 with a gated entrance and an assigned spot for every residence with some unassigned spots available for use, probably visitor parking. No one saw this car. I mean, I'm sure they saw it, just maybe it wasn't suspicious enough to report or, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's not my business whose car it is. You know, who would I even ask, you know? Yeah, so judging from this picture of the Greenbrier apartment complex, I think it was like an aerial photograph taken around 2001. It's a pretty large complex of buildings, but like you said, Lance, most of the parking spaces like were assigned to residents and they were directly adjacent to the buildings. So not like some far off parking lot that, you know, people wouldn't have to pass by this abandoned vehicle. But one would think a car occupying one of these spaces would have been noticed before, like, two years had gone by. And the sheriff's department used cell phone records of Mark Richardson to triangulate his cell phone location to the Greenbrier apartments the day Shelton went missing and brought Mark in for questioning for a second time. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is made possible by PWC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. For some reason, you know, my brother's car was found two years later um, in an apartment complex in Columbia. So we're like, wait a minute now. And then the cell phone towers that law enforcement were tracking found that Mark Richardson used that his cell phone that night of the night that my brother went missing at the cell phone tower two blocks away from where my brother's car was found. So I was like, wait a minute. How was your car? How was the car found here? And then that same night, your phone is being used for you to call your sister and your brother to pick you up. So they were like, wait a minute, your alibi is not sounding right. You told us that my brother dropped you off at your house and then he left. But then we see you use your cell phone that same night over on this other side of Columbia where the car was found. So, so wait a second. So Mark's cell phone. Yeah, take. Yeah, yeah. He, it was pinged to the Greenbrier Apartments, which is where the car was found. So Mark was there the day that Shelton went missing? Or at least his cell phone. His cell phone was there, yeah. Mark had also placed two separate calls from around this location, which is probably how, how they were able to triangulate his location because he had placed calls to both both his brother and his sister asking for a ride back to his place well interesting so do we know if mark knew anybody in that apartment complex i don't think so so they find the car there's a separate occurrence two almost two years later with a noise complaint and the sheriff's department shows up find the car determine that it's um uh shelton's brother's car so that sets off an alarm in their heads and they think let's go back and check the cell phone records of mark because Mark obviously was their main POI, and they find out that his cell phone records indicate that at least his cell phone was in the area of the car of the Greenbrier complex at the time of Shelton's disappearance. So they bring Mark back in. And in the early morning hours of June 20th, which was late on the night of the 19th, Mark called his sister Nikki asking for a ride. And he stated he was two blocks off of Decker Road. But Mark's sister Nikki refused to, uh, to pick him up. And at 12.58 a.m., right after he called his sister, Mark then called his brother Leland and asked for a ride from Park Lane Road. 
and he did pick Mark up in their sister Nikki's car. Leland said Mark told him a girl put him out, and that's why he needed a ride. Yeah, so that comes back to Wilveria's um, recounting of what Mark had said he'd been doing that night, which is with this prostitute, with this girl. And apparently she had kicked him out of his car. So, I mean, either his, his brother is like kind of backing up Mark's version of events or that that really happened when he picked Mark up and, you know, he said, you know, a girl threw me out. But we just looked up how close Park Lane Road is to the Greenbrier apartment complex and it is... Very close. Yeah, yeah, basically one of the closest roads, like major roads. And uh, Decker Boulevard actually is sort of at the end of Park Lane Road. Park Lane Road doesn't go very long, but when it stops, Decker Boulevard picks up. Yeah, and it looks like it's separated by the the major uh, highway there, uh, Route 1. Looks like Route 1 is kind of the split between Park Park Lane Road and Decker Boulevard. So, I mean, it it is uh, it is conceivable that he was on Decker when he called the first time and simply crossed to the other side. Mm-hmm. And it gets crazier what Mark's excuses are for all of these things. So his story was that after Shelton dropped him off, he went in the house and grabbed his laundry at twelve midnight, eleven thirty and twelve midnight. Took his laundry the laundromat in his Olympia Drive or Olympia Avenue or whatever and met up a prostitute named Rita Green. So um, at the laundromat, the, the pro- he, he and this prostitute that he's known for some time have sexual relations and then they talk about having sexual relations that particular night. So then he says that um, he got into her car. I don't know. <laughs> Something about the girl dropped his car off and he got into the car with the with the um prostitute the prostitute was driving a white two-door car which was actually the same color as my brother's car the car he was driving that night was also white he got in that car and then they got onto the highway and then they got into an argument and she told him she kicked him out so he that's that's how he said that he ended up on that road to call his siblings to pick him up I don't know because he said that he was with a prostitute, but in 2019, I did some research on him and found out because he lives in Greenville, right? And so he's still in the prostitution. So if he was in the prostitution back then, he's still in it now um, because he was was, um, busted into a a prostitution sting in Greenville. So he was arrested for that. So this, this woman that he allegedly was with this night, has she been found by the police and interviewed? No. <laughs> oh, Jennifer. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Nothing. No. They claim. So I don't understand it. They have mugshots of the lady. They never. And they claim that they couldn't find her uh, or the lady didn't exist. So if the lady didn't exist, then how do you have mugshots of her? If you know where she is, why didn't you talk to her? The law enforcement never answered, could answer that question. So now the new cold case detectives are wanting to talk to her now, but then they still claim that they can't find her. And I'm like, well, she has a Facebook page. I mean, she's right there. Like, so I, I don't, Jennifer, I can never understand and wrap my mind around this. Why it's taking so long to talk to this lady. Either they have fear that she's going to confirm that it, this actually happened or she's going to tell them, you know, like, I just don't know, like what, what are you, what, why are you not talk? Why didn't you, I can't speak for now, but why, di- why wasn't this lady not talked to at that time? But, you know, it's not a surprise because there's a lot of other stuff that they didn't do at all, which would shock you of things that weren't done. And two and a half years after the discovery of Shelton's vehicle, Mark was finally taken into custody for the murder of Shelton on October 5th, 2005. Mark was 30 years old at the time, and the judge set bail at $100,000. And it took over two years before the case was ready to go to trial in April of 2008, almost seven years after Shelton went missing. And Mulveria said something interesting about her own experience of this. I mean, she was very young when Shelton disappeared. She was 11 years old, and her family didn't really explain to her what had gone on. It wasn't until the trial until 2008 I was 18 years old when I truly found out what was the logistics about about my brother's disappearance I had heard that he went missing like when I was 
I would say 13, 14 years old, I would hear stuff like I would sneak on in my parents' conversations about, but I still wasn't processing. I didn't understand it. No one really sat down with me and told me what was going on, but I heard it um, through conversation of my parents talking to other people. And then when we got to court, I was an 18-year-old just sitting there a whole week in a day in that trial in a cold courtroom and just listening to, you know, looking, li- listening to witnesses, listening to seeing seeing the defendant for the first time. Or maybe, I don't know, I, maybe I saw him at my house when he came here one time when, my, when he went to talk to my dad about my brother's disappearance. But from what I can remember as an adult, that was my first time seeing the defendant, uh, Mark Richardson. So. Um, yeah, a lot of things came out in that courtroom, and I'm looking like, what in the world is going on here? And at Mark's trial, it was learned that Mark's neighbors heard gunshots the night of June 19th, 2001. And one neighbor even testified that she heard three repetitive shots, and it's a quote, just pow, 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 end quote. And Mark confirms that he was at his home with Shelton at the time the neighbors heard the gunshots. But he told the neighbors they heard car backfiring and not gunshots. And Mark's friends were interviewed, too, and they described him to WIS News 10 as, quote, scary. He made it seem like individuals were out to get him, like we had some type of hidden agenda. And that's a quote. So, so that was one of the things that came up in Mark's trial for Shelton's murder. Um, his defense said that, Mark was suffering from some type of undiagnosed mental illness. Um, and this is actually backed up by Mark's friends and family. And Wolveria knows that um, Mark's father also had a period of time where he experienced psychosis and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And we do know that that, that stuff is genetic. It runs in families. And Mark was at an age in, in males when a mental illness like this can start to present itself. Um, so I kind of believe that as a motive, that he just wasn't in his right mind. Well, according to some of the witnesses and uh, according to Shelton's father, he was trending in that direction. One of the witnesses stated that a few days after Shelton's disappearance, Mark called him to ask if he would be interested in buying a thirty-eight caliber handgun. And he told that friend he didn't need it anymore. He wouldn't need it anymore. And uh, several more people told investigators that Mark said he was going to kill one of his friends. Uh, so that is uh, more hearsay from um, other witnesses uh, speaking to Mark's state of mind. And Shelton's father was a bit surprised by what Mark had to say when he phoned him right after his son went missing. Mark had told William that he was not going to talk to him because he was an judge. And he also told him that he didn't even, quote, like that G.D. Shelton, which was a... Uh, Probably very surprising and disheartening and, I guess, suspicion arousing for William. We were discussing this with Bulveria, and she's not sure if she totally believes the, the fact that Mark was suffering from schizophrenia. And it does, like, make me empathize with him a little bit. It's, it's got to be a terrifying thing to go through. And if you really are, aren't in your right mind and you accidentally kill your friend during this time, I mean, that's a horrible tragedy. But I think what we can judge him for is the 21 years that have elapsed since that he has not come forward. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. But I mean, I mean, I kind of think he was in his right mind, too, because he's trying to cover his tracks. He even told someone before Shelton went missing that he was going to kill one of his friends. I mean, that sounds like premeditation. Yeah, it does. But I think one of the hallmarks of schizophrenia is paranoia. And so... He may have thought that Shelton was out to get him in some way, that his friends were out to get him. And like, it's not like you're totally addled where you can't make sense of anything. It's like, no, I know this person is after me and I have to, you know, get rid of them and clean it up because I'm trying to save myself. You know, it's just like a, uh, a, a totally different reality that you're kind of thrust into. So I, I could still believe that he was paranoid and maybe experiencing like some kind of psychosis, but at the same time um, knew what he had done. And he's definitely, psychosis doesn't last for 20 years. So there's definitely a point where Mark could be like, oh, I did a horrible thing. I know that I was going through an episode at the time. You know, let me tell this family where their family member is, you know. 
yeah, I think that's right on, Jen. Good take and uh, and rebuttal to the uh, premeditation idea. But unfortunately, the jury of 12 were unable to unanimously decide on a verdict, so a mistrial was declared. And according to Shelton's sister, seven jurors voted to find Mark guilty. The five holdouts, they held out because they had concerns about the fact that there was no body in this case with no eyewitnesses. So that brings us to some stuff that we've been, you know, researching and looking into and um, dealing with today. Just, you know, missing persons with no bodies and how far can you go before you can uh, convict somebody, before you can, first of all, arrest somebody put them on trial and convict them. Seems like the trail is all leading to one particular person, but you know, you still have five out of 12 that just can't seem to you know, come to terms with that. It's kind of uh, incredible that they went to trial um, with a no body case at all. I mean, you don't see that that often. Um, the fact they got seven um, guilty votes, you know, and, and five holdouts, maybe that's why you don't see it that often um, because it's just not an easy conviction. And obviously, they can't try someone for murder twice. Um, so it's it's actually a good thing that it was a mistrial and not like he he was found not guilty because then they wouldn't be able to ever bring Mark back to trial. Yeah, definitely. That's one good thing that comes out of this. But we see this like in a lot of other missing persons cases that we cover, where it's like you pretty much know what happened and you know who's responsible for it, but like you just don't have enough evidence to tie that person to the crime scene or to a body because you can't find the body and you know the prosecutor doesn't doesn't want to bring a, uh, a case like that to trial because it might end up like this with a mistrial yeah well i have to say kudos to this prosecutor though anyway because in a lot of the cases that we cover there's I feel like more circumstantial evidence and it never goes to trial, you know, and I, I wish there would be more at bats um, on on no body homicide cases for sure. And after the hung jury in Mark Richardson's trial for the murder of Shelton, neither the family or police have given up on solving this, but it has turned into a cold case. And Shelton's sister runs the Facebook page dedicated to her brother. The page is called Finding Shelton Sanders. And in 2021, the family had a 20-year commemorative event to honor Shelton. And they also put their energy into not just Shelton, but to other families who have missing loved ones in South Carolina. Anytime a family can rally like that, we see it all too often where they go in the other direction and families fall apart and it, it destroys them. Uh, you know, again, it reminds me of P.I.'s for the Missing. It reminds me of Bruce Maitland just taking all of that, putting it into one box and saying that's where all the pain lives. But here's what we have to do to make sure that other people don't experience this and, and see how much help and uh, how much assistance we can give families who are in similar set of circumstances. Well, Viria did did say that the current cash reward is $25,000, but she is uh, working on doubling that cash reward for information that leads to the recovery of Shelton's remains. I think she is going to formally release this development in the cash reward in June, but she said it was okay for us to, to talk about that the reward is now doubling to $50,000. I think Wilveria is one of the strongest people I've ever had the fortune of meeting. As you can tell from hearing her interview, she was so forthcoming about like the confusion and the pain and like the long, long grieving process. Um, and she she kind of took up the gauntlet from her parents. She watched them kind of toil away at this investigation. She watched her father leave at night to go search swamps on his own. And then years later, when she came of age, she was like, you know, I've, I've got to alleviate this burden in some way from my parents and find a way to not only bring closure to my family, but help other families, like you said, Lance, who are in a similar situation. Well, that brings me to, I guess, my final question for you. What does closure look like for you and your family? Oh my goodness. And I want to cry like closure. Oh my God. Just um, finding his remains and bringing him home. My, my dad has a memorial. He purchased land and uh, he has a memorial for my brother across the street from the church. 
and um he's putting like an American flag the our American flag up there and there's benches for people to sit and I see my brother's um remains being placed there with his name on a tombstone and I can go to him and talk to him and, and just tell him about the past 21 years everything that we've been through how much we miss him how much we love him and just having my parents and um my other brothers surrounding us and saying a prayer and asking god to forgive my brother for all of his sins or any things that you know that it wasn't right and to forgive him for you know, even when he was a kid, if he ever did anything wrong, and just giving his life back to Christ, and just uh, praying that we get to see him again one day. But at this point, 21 years, just you just want you want your loved one home. You just want to know where they are. The hardest part is not knowing where your loved one is. I mean, most people, a lot of, well, a lot of people, not most people can walk up to their person, their family member's grave and they can put flowers there and they can stand by the grave and know that their loved one is right there, but we don't have that opportunity and I, I just want it to be where my, my parents can at least say goodbye to their so to me that's closure for me if you have any information in the disappearance of Shelton John Sanders you can reach out to the Richland County Sheriff's Department at 803-576-3000 you can email the family at findingsheltonsanders at gmail.com or through the family tip line at 803-427-4209.